Welcome to the Scale Up Valley podcast, where we bring the best founders and investors to help you scale a business from 1 million to 1 trillion. Today's guests are Klaus and Aaron, the co-authors of the book Global Class, and of course, also involved in a, in a series of ventures uh, in the tech ecosystem. But let's start by getting to know more about themselves. Um, Klaus, Aaron, who would like to start? Oh, well, Mike, thanks so much for having us. This is Aaron for everyone listening. Uh, so um, for, for my background, I'm a Silicon Valley native. Uh, I started my career at AT&T as part of his leadership development program, sort of future C-levels. Uh, officers was one of the youngest service regional VP, but I always knew in my heart that I was an entrepreneur. And so I did basically the whole decade I was there, I did a bunch of side businesses, uh, a real eclectic mix from uh, custom wedding invitations to portable beer pong tables, to a taxi app that came out around the same time Uber did. Eventually, I left to be a serial entrepreneur, started a few more ventures, a few failed, three got acquired, and then about six years ago, was asked to teach entrepreneurship at UC Berkeley's Haas School of Business, where I still teach. And then about four years ago, Klaus and I teamed up on a venture called 10X Innovation Lab. My name is Klaus. Uh, Aaron is very curious when it comes to building uh, startups and exploring technologies. I'm very curious when it comes to exploring the world. So I've lived and worked on four different continents, uh, Santiago, Chile, Hanoi, Vietnam, from Denmark, and now in Silicon Valley. What I did in Vietnam was particular, particularly interesting. Um, I helped lead product launch strategy for one of the largest beer brewing companies in the world mm-hmm. um, and really got the first chance to kind of see how uh, you know, even the largest organizations are challenged when it comes to building a global organization. In fact, the company I worked for and represented back then had been there since the mid nineties. And in around 2011 and 12, they fired the whole team there locally because they still weren't successful in that market. They have wasted a lot of time and money in the process. And so after that journey, I wanted to go to Silicon Valley to sort of flex the entrepreneurial and innovation muscle. And so I quickly came over here and joined an organization called Silicon Valley Forum, which is actually was one of the oldest nonprofits promoting innovation and entrepreneurship. And there I was responsible for launching a lot of acceleration programs mm-hmm. within the national government organizations. And that was sort of the first sort of visibility into also how startup founders have a lot of challenges when it comes to actually expanding to new markets. Definitely, and we we have that in common. Uh, also, I've been covering kind of Europe, the US, Latin, uh, Southeast Asian, the APAC region. Only missing here to be more to have more representation from African uh, founders and and entrepreneurs. But the time will come, uh, I'm sure, and I'm committed in the future to have also that representation in in this uh, 240 plus uh, episodes. Wow. Uh, so far and it's really a pleasure to have you both uh, on the show and uh, and especially to talk about the topic that I that I love right uh, how to how to build uh, a global company we know that a lot of companies go very local or even very regional in 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 the majority of the cases uh, very few companies are able to really go global but uh, before talking too much about it, I uh, would love to know from the authors, why did you decide to write the book uh, and why everyone should listen uh, or should uh, read the book or listen the book? That's true nowadays with the audiobooks. <laughs> right. 
um, I mean, it really came from our past experiences, right? A little bit of the the journey I had with uh, with with Vietnam, but also when launching all these acceleration programs, basically seeing founders make the same mistakes all the time, and that sort of gave us the initial idea to think about writing a book. Uh, but then also, we didn't want to just write from our own experiences. We wanted to add other people's experiences into the mix as well. And so I remember in the early days, I said to Aaron, let's talk to 30 executives. And Aaron back then, he was like, ah, maybe only 10 people will speak to us. And literally within three weeks, we have 50 meetings in place uh, with everything from, you know, someone like Abe Smith, who leads international Zoom, um, to the former VP of international at Apple, who led, managed a $100 billion PL, all the way down to the first hire outside of North America, Uber, who launched five different markets in Asia, to founders in Bangladesh to Indonesia, whatever, you know, really trying to understand what makes them successful and or not successful. And so we went this, on this quest to kind of, you know, find patterns uh, to, to kind of be able to build this playbook for building a global organization. And we're excited to share that with you guys today. Aaron? And, and definitely people would be thinking for, for themselves, so why the hell should we talk about Apple and those very big companies? Maybe they don't relate to some of the founders that are listening to the show, but it's it makes a lot of sense in my perspective. And I've kind of expanded even my scaling up research or my scaling up passion when I thought, how do we get from zero to one uh, million, from one to 10, then from 10 to 100, from 100 to 1B, like the, the kind of the path of Zoom, uh, nowadays, and then how do we get from 1B to 10B and from 10B to 100B, and then we have 500B uh, with with Walmart uh, and uh, Apple is is getting uh, closer and closer. So which I think it's around. I'm not didn't see the the last Fortin, global Fortin 500 numbers, but uh, around 250 or 300 billion. Uh, in, in in revenue. So this allows us to, to think that this is all about scaling up and those companies were very small uh, uh, at a certain time. And it also shows that global expansion takes a while uh, to to build a, a global company. Aaron, you wanted to- Yeah, to that point also to clarify, when we did much of this research, the people we spoke to were the people who started those expansions. So even though there are big names that we recognize like Airbnb and Slack and other companies, the people we interviewed were the people who were there at the very beginning, who were the real catalyst behind the expansion. So- Yes, we recognize these big global brands, and part of it is because of the work of these people that we we spoke with, and and we we, we can talk about it in a bit. But we call them entrepreneurs, as in international, uh, a concept that we came up with. Entrepreneurs, oh, got it. Now I understand what what I saw on 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 your website uh, of 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 the book. That's that's definitely a a great one, and um, yeah, so. What has been some of the most fascinating or the, the most interesting stories uh, that you have heard? So any intriguing uh, special stories that you'd like to share? I mean, we, we have lots of stories. Um, I'll maybe share the DocuSign story, then maybe Aaron can talk yeah. about the Walmart story afterwards because you addressed it uh, you know, a couple of minutes ago. But um, one story that we share is, is DocuSign when they were expanding to Japan. And so DocuSign could easily have gone what we label in the book 
the company way of doing things, basically applying what they've learned in their initial market and just push it through the new market that they want to enter into. But instead, they actually have that, you know, cultural empathy and cultural understanding enough to understand that they have to adapt the platform and the company right. to be able to scale into Japan. As an example, you know, uh, DocuSign is a signature company. And, you know, in, in, in Japan, they do hanko stamps, which is like a wooden piece where you press it down on the mm -hmm. piece of paper and that is your signature, essentially. So they partner with a company called Shatihata, which is not a digital company at all. It is literally the company that makes these hanko stamps. Partner with them, created what they call e-hanko, shared a part of their economics with them, and then later scale into the market. And then, so they were very culturally con conscious when, when, when it came to actually expanding into you know, a market that's very challenging for most companies, right? But we're successful. And so, you know, really understanding you need to adapt your, your, your business to, to be able to scale is really, really important. Klaus had mentioned, um, had mentioned Walmart, and we, we actually kick off the first chapter of our book talking about how Walmart wanted to do things the company way and attempted to implement this sort of American way of doing business in Germany when they expanded. They bought a couple of companies and they, there were a few, mm -hmm. there were a number of them, but three that we key in on of, of things that they sort of insisted on doing in the German market was, was one, you know, the value proposition was around low prices, especially with like groceries. Well, German, in the German market, they had very low prices already. So it wasn't really that compelling. And there was no real way to get supply chain advantages to make prices lower. Then in U.S., uh, packaged meat is very normal, but in Germany, that's you know not as culturally desirable, and there's like kind of like a lack of trust. Like, what is this you know other right. Walmart, Sam's Club brand? And then finally, and probably most interestingly, was culturally in in Walmart. For those who've been there, they're very friendly when you enter the door. They're like welcome and and very friendly at the cashier and everything, and that kind of freak. Germans out, right? They were like, they're used to like <laughs> stopping at their own pace, doing their own thing. And they're like, who is this exactly. person? And so, so the company failed. Leave me alone. <laughs> yeah. And, and they lost, you know, over a billion dollars in the process. And, and just to share my personal story when coming to the US as well, it was weird yeah. to me going into supermarkets in, 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 in the US because people wanted to back, uh, you know, basically back, uh, pack my bags. And so I was, on, I was in the mindset, no, these are my groceries. I picked them out. You should not pack my bags at all. I want to do it myself because we're just used to doing that. We're used to doing things pretty much on our own when we're going to the supermarket, right? So it's like right. this interesting cultural experience that you need to make sure that you understand when you enter into new markets. Love it. Yeah. Uh, I, I was going to offer one, one additional story, but like with, with a focus on something that's practical. Um, yep. So for those from America who are listening, you probably have never heard of this company, but everywhere else in the world, you probably have. And that's Blah Blah Car, world's largest carpooling platform. And uh, we, we interviewed a number of times, Frederick Mazala, their, their uh, former CEO founder. Um, and Fred was really supportive of, of everything we've been doing, which we appreciate. Um but he shared this notion that they had internally that I think he was the driver behind that he called building for two markets. And so what they, they considered both the French market where they're from, as well as the Spanish market while they launched. Now they didn't launch in both markets, be very clear. They didn't launch in both markets because that there's some dangers to that, but they considered both markets. So when it came to building the product, they thought about not just French, but also Spanish, you know, two languages mm -hmm. in the UI, UX. 
right. they thought about not just French regulations, but Spanish regulations as well. And so when you consider, you know, when it comes to the product, the team, the, um, the culture, the processes, if you, if you focus on building for multiple markets, you're not hard coding it just for your first market. And when you hard code it just for your first market, then it becomes very hard to add a second market and third and fourth because everything is so customized for that market. But if you build in flexibility, then it's much easier. The, the other thing they did in particular was they hired people from Spain who then moved to the office in France. And so during the strategy building process and development process, they had this insight for the Spanish market. It wasn't just what they thought would happen in Spain, but they had that influence. And then that team had that great company knowledge that then they were able to take with them to pair with the local knowledge to then be successful right. for when they did launch in Spain. And this speaks actually to one of the issues that we often stumble upon with executives right. that you know, are looking at expanding to new markets. Sometimes we engage with them and say, no, we're not, we're not going to expand until a year from now. So we're not ready to have a conversation. But in fact, they should have the conversation right now because there's also a lot of internal capability right. building you need to do as well. To Aaron's example, in terms of bringing in international minded talent that could be the link into that market, making sure you can build that muscle a little bit earlier. So you set up, you set yourself up for success in the future. And so oftentimes it's, it's almost like now we're ready. Now we're going to push the speeder, but you know, in fact, you actually need to slowly build up, uh, you know, before that and not just rush it uh, as soon as you are planning to fully launch in that market. So it's really about capability building for us as well. This is very interesting because it's super aligned with with something that I've also learned in my in my journey, which which was I was very strict about the entrepreneurs that I would work with. So they should have at least one million dollars in revenue, um, at least fifty people for me to be interested in working with them and starting implementing the scaling up um, framework. And then I understood that. Uh, they might fill in the 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 match the requirements, but then if they add a bad startup stage, uh, they are not ready to scaling up. So sometimes we need even to start creating some of those foundations a little bit earlier, in order to prepare the company to to scale up, which is very aligned with what you are saying. And something also very interesting that, I, that I've learned as well, and, and I'm sure that is super related with international expansion, is that product market fit in a market uh, or in a product is not product market fit in a, in a new market. And we are already with that mindset that we are scaling up. And it's all about, and we talk about adding markets and adding segments and adding products as it would be super, super easy, right? It's, it's almost creating a new company uh, from scratch again. And again, looking into the projections that we are trying to do also in the Excel spreadsheet that we can put everything that we want there. Uh, we know how, how hard it takes and how unpredictable it is to get from zero to one. It is more predictable to get from one to three, three to five. Uh, then from five to 10, maybe we can find the, the, the growth plateau and we are not able to get to the next stage and we need to reinvent the wheel and those kind of companies. Uh, this, is, this is the majority of the companies. Let's say that what we are talking about are the outliers, the ones, the, the slacks of life, the deal, it's deal, the, the new company that made it in less than one year to 100 million or 10 to 100 million and something like that, right? So um but but definitely it's but 
as I say, it's it's good to know the best practices and also the common mistakes, because if we are able to implement those foundations and those pillars and, and, and those playbooks, we will be in a much better shape to, to be successful. But it's not a recipe that if we do that, we will be successful because we know that those are outliers, right? So what you're talking about is really important. And, and I think that what, what Klaus and I see as our big goal here is to take these important concepts that a lot of people with experience like you understand and put some structure behind it. Because often we were told, right. even those who are really experienced, they're like, how do I even describe this whole localization thing and all these things to people? So to the point you just made, we, we break the expansion uh, or you know global growth process into three different stages. So there's market entry, market mm -hmm. growth, and market maturity. Love so it. the goal of market entry is product market fit, which everybody's familiar with. We don't need to get into that. But to what you were alluding to, that the end goal, the what marks the end of that market growth stage is what we call company market fit. And so that's where mm -hmm. it's not just the product and, and finding the need and value proposition other things in the market, but how have you built the company to actually support scale in that market, to support additional localizations, to um, to basically support scale that is happening in other countries as well. So that's why we label it as company market fit because there's a whole cultural and structural element beyond just the the mechanics of the business model and the product. And and to give you just an outlier example in terms of company market fit, right? Sindisk, um, yeah. Danish company, as I'm sure you know, uh, being yeah. from Europe, they chose the U.S. market to be their initial market to scale in. And so they were located in Tindaloin, which is the area where there's a lot of homelessness in San Francisco, and they're very big on community impact. And so their community impact area, so we're naturally drawn towards homelessness in that area. But when they were then expanding into Singapore, the Singaporean employees, they were like, homelessness is not really that prevalent here. So it doesn't really resonate with us. But instead, they found out that there was a lot of senior isolation in Singapore. So they decided to change to focus on that specific area. So localization is not just about product or marketing or whatever that is. It is really considering all aspects of your business, even community impact area as well, to make sure you get that right engagement from your employees and so forth. So because we often see that people associate localization with you know, language translation. Uh, but in our book, we kind of brought, you know, make a much more broader sort of definition of that. It, it made me remind also of an interesting topic when we were talking about Zendesk coming out of Denmark and uh, European player going to San Francisco and ex expanding across the US and also considering APAC via Singapore to, um, to expand, uh, which is the difference. Uh, I, I, I was thinking, Again, the majority of, of the players, if, if they come from a very large market from the US, from Brazil, Russia, or I'm not talking now about Russia, but China, India, et cetera, uh, they, they don't need to get out of their domestic market, right? So, but of course, if you are coming out of Denmark or myself out of Portugal, uh, even with a boutique consulting company for scale-ups, I need to get out of Portugal very quickly. At the moment, I don't have a single uh, customer in Portugal and I'm based in in, in Portugal. So which, which shows uh, the importance of having a global mindset from day one. I even said at the time, especially 10 years ago, uh, I only had two options. So I would change my business 
or I would change my location, right? Because uh, at the time we would have kind of 10 scale-ups and I had the opportunity to work with the majority of them uh, in Portugal. Definitely the market expanded a lot, but I think that that's a, an interesting point. Not all companies uh, start with a global mindset and with a global um, ambition. And of course, there are also more opportunistic styles that want really to get to 100 million as quickly as possible to exit the company or even to get to 10 million and get a good exit or to 5 million or, or to 1 million or to sell the technology and not even scale uh, the company. Did you, did you see any interesting patterns on, on those kind of founders? And, and especially, I, I think that as we have a very global uh, community, uh, some of them might be thinking, yes, but why do I get out of Brazil? Why, why the, uh, the majority of the listeners are from the US, the, the same. Um, but of course, the European ones would say, yes, of course, we need to start thinking global from day one. And we need to go through that decision of even expanding to the, to, to the US to be able to really scale. And this can kill the company. That's... We're we're nodding our heads because this is everything you're saying is very much ex exactly what we found. So first, and this is a little nuanced, but if you listen to what Klaus said when he was talking about Zendesk, he didn't use the word home market. He used the right. word initial market. And we very intentionally do Love that it. because yeah. the initial market may not be where you're from. Like we we, we talk of one of our interviews was uh, with Spotify. Um Spotify did choose their home market for a number of reasons. We can share that story in, in a bit, but but a lot of other countries or a lot of other companies will go somewhere else. You know, Denmark, where Klaus is from, is a smaller market. You need to find another market to, to scale in. So the initial market piece is important. Um, the the other thing, and this is nuanced as well, but we like the way you said that, or I'll, I'll say I like the way you said that. It's about the global mindset. It's about thinking global day one. So some companies, especially early stage we talk to, will say, oh, we want to be born global. And that's not a good strategy. You will likely fail. That What that just means right. is you're like, let's just go everywhere and see wherever we can get product market yeah. fit. Um, Expanding to soon, what, for instance. Yeah, well, like one of the people... One of the people we interviewed, uh, Scott Coleman, who used to head international at Pinterest and was part of the international team at Google, he says that in one of the big mistakes he he found in companies that he advises um, on expansion is they just they think that because they couldn't find initial product market fit where they first launched, going internationally is the right next step, and that's not that just is kind of like another way of delaying the inevitable of you know not being successful. Um, the, the other piece similar to what we're talking about. Uh, it, we like to say that global is the new agile. And mm. what we mean by that is that, um, you know, companies kind of got agile already. What's the next thing they're looking at? But but what it, what it really means is a lot of the patterns of what's needed for agile to be successful is very true for international. So, you know, one, when you look at agile, when it started, it was all about startups. Only startups use that, you know, larger organizations, like whatever. But all of a sudden right. they realize like, oh, like this works with us too, if you're a big organization. Well, when you look at at this mindset that a lot of a lot of entrepreneurs from smaller countries have about thinking global day one, you know, uh, like you were alluding to an American entrepreneur from Brazil, China, they're thinking about international much later. But really to be successful, they need to take that mindset, just like larger organizations saw the value in agile companies from larger markets need to see the value in that mindset that often entrepreneurs and teams from smaller markets had. Plus, um, 
you know, one, everybody has to buy in to this global class mindset that we've created, as opposed to this company way or, or country way of doing things. And then also to the final parallel to agile is that just like in, you know, agile is this very iterative, iterative process that, that is not about building everything perfect and launching in a formal way. We see that that's where international growth is going. So the way of, of a company saying, oh, let's hire 20 people and have a big office mm -hmm. in this country and do a big ribbon cutting, <laughs> that's not the way to be successful. There, there's so many ways for you to just to dip your toe in the market and test and validate first, just like you do in the agile yeah. process. Absolutely. And uh, I was also forgetting that, uh, as you highlighted, it's really the mindset, because even if you come from a very if your initial market, I love the expression, uh, is is a very large market, you need to focus on a state or on a region or in a specific niche or in a segment. And then you need to have a different strategy for the East Coast or for the West Coast or for the Midwest, if we're talking about the US. Of course, the South of Brazil or the Northern part of Brazil, it's different. Uh, I'm sure that uh, Angzu or Shenzhen or Shanghai or Beijing would be also different regions to, to target uh, as, as markets. And we also need to be able, again, to bring that diversity into the team to be able to understand what those regions will need in terms of localization of the product of the market. And I think this is the difficult part also is we want to have everyone in the same location close to each other when we are small, but at the same time, we want to have diversity in the table to be able to think a little bit ahead of the curve. And as you said, there is al always this difficult um, thought process that, that entrepreneurs need to get. And, and I do my best to help and also to apply myself because it's, it's, it's tough, which is to align the long, the mid and the short term. Just right. because we have a vision for the long term and we understand how it, uh, how we do we reverse engineering that long-term vision into the midterm and to the short term, it doesn't mean that we would be executing the long term today or even the midterm today. It means that we are doing something in the short term that will get us closer to the midterm and the and, and the long term. What I'm saying is if we want to be the global leader, you need to start with the continent. And within the continent, we need to start with the country. And within the country, we need to start maybe with, with a segment that is uh, in different countries if you are targeting enterprise. It's different if you are targeting enterprise or SMB uh, or small businesses or almost B2C or B2B. So so many nuances uh, there and then we bring into the into the into the topic that I think it's very related to international ex expansion the importance of radical focus totally um, maybe just to jump on 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 yeah. one point you made earlier around diversity and then leadership commitment yeah. uh, and focus right um uh, Silicon Valley is a very diverse ecosystem it is fairly easy to tap into it you know, globally minded talent from other countries and regions, right. etc. There's other countries that do not have the same sort of possibility and op opportunity to do so because Japan is a market. You don't have the same availability. But in some of those maybe less mature markets from like a global mindset or entrepreneurial standpoint, there's an opportunity to stand out and then tap into those that exist there. As an example, Rakuten is one of the few success stories of recent tech companies that are successful globally. And one of the things that the founder Migitani-san did was to say, okay, hey, 
we're going to all speak English. It's a very simple concept, but to Japan, it's a very right. radical concept, right? So they did what they call Englandization of the company. And so I was sitting at the office uh, in Rakuten, I think now one and a half month ago, and the chief well-being officer, which is a co-founder as well, he said, I knew no English in the beginning of the company. In the beginning, we did speak Japanese, but we made a commitment as a leadership team to force ourselves towards that direction because we had the aspiration of building a global company. So part of it is also from a leadership standpoint is to get out of your comfort zone as well. And so by doing that, they were able to build a globally minded culture in a very locally minded country, which is very fascinating, but it enabled them to stand out in that locally minded country to capture the talent of globally minded people, if that makes sense, right? And yeah. so I think, I think there's an opportunity to kind of pave the way for also the next generation of startups, whether it's in Africa, whether it's in Latin America, whether it's in, in other regions of the world, mm -hmm. to make that commitment to build a global organization and be able to tap into these entrepreneurs that we define in the book. Definitely, great point. So we, we kind of uh, had the opportunity to get to know both of you uh, a little bit on why you you wrote the book uh, some international expansion insights some stories about uh, what has been done right and and wrong some of the failures uh, again we are also talking about outlier stories a little bit of the mindset we need to bring into the table in order to be able to to build a, a global class the name of the book company <laughs> And uh, and so I know that you also have some tools and playbooks and resources um, in the book, and and two of the tools uh, that you talk in in your website um, uh, promoting the book is balanced localization and complexity as you scale and you kind of have a a, a, a draw uh, combining go to market strategy with operational strategy, initial market, product market fits, etc. And, and you also have to implement the four commitments uh, for successful um, growth. The second tool, of course, we will not have enough time to cover all of those. But just to give an example, what is the most interesting tool or resource that you'd like to talk about uh, for for people to to get an understanding yeah. of how it can in, help in them? Since some, some people will be following this episode with video, is it okay if we show something just to give a little yeah, yeah. little visual Absolutely. to everybody? Okay. We need so, to just help the ones that are the majority. Listening. Yeah, I'll, I'll still describe it. So so what, what we're showing on the slide is, is this two-step process. So essentially what we found is that the agile methodology in its pure form is not very effective in a global context. And the reason why is because the whole focus is to pivot and iterate and change until you find your right model. And that's great for one market. But if you do it in five or 10 markets, then what happens is you have five or 10 different models. And we found that a lot of companies, they have this muscle that they've built by getting product market fit in their initial market to just like speed at all costs, we're going to find product market fit. So they go, great, let's just go do it again in four or five different places. And then all of a sudden they hit a brick wall because you know they're like, oh, wow, now we have five or 10 different models. We didn't build for scale. And so part of what we've built is, is these different tools to help you consider scale from the beginning. And, and so one of them is what we label as like a global layer on top of Agile. And we've, we've been you know, really blown away with the support we got. So our book and methodology was endorsed by Eric Reese, uh, by Steve Blank, by Alex Osterwalder, sort of the big, the big uh, 
you know, titans of, uh, of agile, Definitely. Um, Congrats. but, but essentially you have to revisit that customer development mentality. Don't do what Walmart did, which is assume the company way is going to work in another market, but you, you don't want to swing the whole other way and just attempt to localize everything sort of blindly. So to make it actionable, we basically created what we call the business model localization canvas, which I'm showing on the screen here, which, you know, is, is kind of, you know, reticent of like a business model canvas. And, and for, for those of you seeing this, you'll, you'll recognize the different rows match the quadrants of the business model canvas. But essentially what you do is you take that validated model from your initial market and you run it through two key filters to get to a new set of hypotheses to then go test and iterate on in the new market. And those two key filters are government regulation and culture, because those two things really affect almost everything. And, and, you know, to a certain extent of what you were saying, Mike, before is sometimes some of that, especially related to government regulation, is even at like a state or local municipality level, as opposed to just even a country level. But, um, you know, one of the categories here, key partners, Klaus told the story of uh, DocuSign, where uh, culturally uh, signatures were different in Japan so you have to consider that. And, and, you know, DocuSign was successful because they considered the cultural side and created that key partnership with Sachi Hata. Um, on the government side, a lot of countries require that a an international uh, entity, an international company create a local joint venture partnership or have a local joint, uh, a local board or things like that. They won't let an international entity own 100% of a local entity. And so you, you have to think about those types of things. Now, to your point around complexity, um, there's a little yin and yang we're showing. So localization <laughs> is one side, but you have to manage the complexity of it and not make it an afterthought. And so what we created as part two of the global agile methodology is a localization premium analysis. We use the word premium because um, there's often a cost associated with localizing, but a benefit you get as well. And, and what this is, is a spider chart that basically has a holistic look at everything you might need to adapt in order to find fit in a new market. So initial product market fit is in the middle, but you have to deviate away from that to get fit in a new market. The top part is go-to-market related. The bottom part is operational. And uh, you can see in there, there's a faint watermark of, a, of a, an iceberg. And we use that analogy because some companies will simplistically think like, about the go-to-market side. Oh, we got to change the language and the pricing and the marketing message. and you know, we're good. <laughs> like that's all we need, <laughs> but there's so much under the surface you have to think about. So the, the way to think of this tool is it's something that helps you. And, and we have actually a very detailed analysis, like Excel, Google sheets based tool that basically helps create the beginning of a brain trust as you're researching a market, helps you develop the strategy and then bridges toward implementation. And so this can be a great tool to help communicate what some of those changes need to be. And maybe just to add to that final comment that Aaron just made in terms of creating a brain trust, that is often what is forgotten when companies try to build for global scale. Um, what often happens is that they don't build these systems that allows for information sharing and knowledge sharing as well. And so to the point of my experience in Vietnam, when we came in and had to develop the go-to-market strategy for new product launches, in some cases, they barely knew where their products were placed of the old brand that, that they had which is tragic, right? As a big organization, they don't know where things are placed. And so it's really important to build these systems because then also, you know, the insights you capture from Vietnam could maybe be used in other locations as well in terms of the go-to-market strategy implementation, right? And so really making sure you 
also speak at a GM to GM level, if you will, and, and, and have this information sharing and playbooks that you mentioned in the early part of today's um, conversation, right? That's incredibly key. Now over to more what we talk uh, what we talk about initial preparation as well. It's important to have essential commitments as an organization. One is that resource alignment piece that you also addressed a little bit earlier, but we make the point that it's not just a launch and then leave type of concept, but it's more about how can we add minimal resources into test the market and then build up milestones where you then unlock additional resources down the road. Another aspect that we talk about is autonomy and trust. That's incredibly key. On the autonomy side, when you're a local team, you need to have high level mm -hmm. of autonomy because you need to do right. discovery in that market, right? You need to go out and kind of figure out, okay, how do we need to adapt this business model? And then obviously you need to align the corporate strategy down the road as well. So that autonomy then decreases a little bit. And then later, once you start to build for that maturity, you start to increase the autonomy as well because you want to capture more low market share in that market. Then we have communication and clarity, where we talk about the importance of building feedback loops. That's key as well, to the point of brain trust and you know, developing these communication channels, not just between GMs, but also with the headquarter, is absolutely critical to be successful. Because obviously, we say that you know, uh, from, let's say, the headquarter side of things, they need to communicate you know, vision, you know, core values, culture, et cetera. That becomes a little bit the guiding light for decision-making for local teams. And then local teams need to share local market insights back to the headquarter. And these two you know, parties need to align in terms of what is the strategy for that local market? Where do we localize, but where do we also sort of balance a little bit that with that complexity piece as well? And then uh, the commitment to our global agile process that Aaron shared a little bit of, about earlier, right? So these are some of the essential um, things that we key in on, on the book. And, and definitely, it, it kind of makes me think about what happens a lot on the expansion from Europe to, to the US when the CEO moves himself to, to the US um, to be able to be much faster in decision making uh, and also to be able to, to have an understanding of the market, of course, being surrounded by people who know much better the market than than themselves and, and and who are native but again those people if they don't have the the power to of decision and, and the speed of decision um and someone who is who can be an an ambassador of of the business in that market and show commitment for for the business that market it's it's definitely really important uh amazing tools that we have uh shared today super super happy so yeah, to, to the point, like people wise, th this was one of our big discoveries and, and this is pretty core to our mission because we realized that there are these uh, certain people and uh, one more time, I'll, I'll show a slide just to give a little visual. Um, we, we used the term earlier, entrepreneur as an in international. And this is a coin, a term we coined to really describe who these catalysts for successful expansion were. There's a certain mindset that they had in common. And and while the entrepreneurial community is really well connected, this community of expansion executives is not as much because often it was a very solitary experience. Like you are focused on other markets. Everybody else is focused on the initial market or, or core existing markets. Mm -hmm. You know, you're shouting like Ross is talking about, you need resources and things are different here. And so we really wanted to bring these people to the forefront. So companies were more mindful of identifying and nurturing this type of talent. And, and essentially what it is on the page, there's a, a, a pyramid, like a triangle on the bottom is the agile or entrepreneurial mindset that's been around forever. 
The middle is the company mindset or being an intrapreneur, the idea of being able to be agile, but work within the complexity and bureaucracy of an established organization. But what hasn't been talked about as much that we see is this, this mindset of the next generation of companies that will be global class and successful at global scale is a cultural mindset. So global mindedness, cultural curiosity, cultural sensitivity, the ability to have empathy for another market to help localize that business and be successful in penetrating and getting scale in that market. And so one of our big things is, is really to, to help companies you know, put, a, put a word behind this, identify these type of people and, and, and use them as catalysts, whether that's in local markets or at headquarters, uh, you know, this is a mindset that really can permeate all levels of an organization, all functions. It's that cultural mindset that's that's the key. Just to add a, a few comments here mm -hmm. to it as well, or maybe some stories to it. You see these people in the background, Abe Smith on the right. He, we often talk about they have these formative experiences that led them on the path to build a global career. Abe Smith was an English teacher in a rural fishing village in Kushu, Japan. That sort of gave him the you know understanding that things are very different from his backyard on the east coast of the U.S. So he really got this passion for international career and cultures from that early formative experience. Trying alone in the middle, he was on a mission in Korea for two years in the early '90s. Learned Korean. Now I've helped Weebly, uh, Evernote, uh, mm -hmm, and now Drata mm -hmm. expand to multiple countries and markets. And Catherine Himes on the left, she led product expansion for Slack. And she was the first in, uh, no, international intern um, for Baidu uh, in China, actually. Also a formative experience. And so part of also what we, what we say is that we want to nurture more of these entrepreneurs. Because in a world that's more divided, some, you know, these days in terms of conversation point, we want to have these entrepreneurs bringing the world more together. People who are culturally conscious and interested in, 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 in connecting to different worlds and uh, in different countries. And so it's really, really important. Also a little bit of a social mission for us to kind of nurture more of this type of talent. Uh, it's definitely also the mission of um, the podcast and, and the community that we put together every single week, uh, bringing all the regions uh, a little bit closer and getting an overview from different perspectives, different angles. Uh, I think that's uh, really uh, I'm very passionate about this and also having the opportunity to be talking with an American entrepreneur or, or an entrepreneur based in the US, then in, in LATAM, then in Southeast Asia, it brings a lot of diversity and, and freshness into, into the conversation. And, and guys, I know that you have big news this week about the book. Uh, congratulations in advance. Uh, of course, there is a gap in, in, in the recording of two or three weeks, depending on our pipeline of episodes but um so this happened kind of two or three weeks uh ago but what is it uh, I, I guess both of us can share it right but uh yeah. i mean this this has been a very formative week for us as well it's been we've been working two years for this and part of the goal was to get it to what we got it to last week and that was to make it a bestseller right and so we were announced two times last week that we were a national bestseller and also Wall Street Journal bestseller. So, and it, it, it number two happened. on the Wall Street Journal number business two. Yeah. And it absolutely okay. could not have happened without meeting people like you along the process as well, in meet, meeting with international business leaders who have these experiences that we could bring into play in the book. In building the playbook, um, so <laughs> that was a little bit of rap there. I'm like, I don't know, in the middle of it. <laughs> so, um, but, but anyway, it couldn't have happened without the community. 
Love it. Awesome. And uh, before we go, we will not do the the usual um, quick question and answer that we do at the end, uh, because we, we decided to focus much more on the sides of, of the book and, and to share with, with the community some of the lessons that you that you guys collected in the last uh, two years and uh, 300 plus uh, interview or 400 plus uh, interviews that you did um, around the world. So we also try to, to give as much value as possible, sharing some of the resources, some of the common mistakes. Um, but I would like to ask you both one question, um, which is very self-reflective. If you'd have an opportunity to have a coffee with yourself, at the beginning of your journey uh, in in the tech uh, ecosystem, what advice would you offer to your younger self? Well, would like to start. Um, sure. Uh, maybe I'll, I'll still a little bit of the book theme here. Maybe don't just the book by its cover and, and be naturally curious. And the reason why I'm saying this is a little bit of my experience having lived in another country. Um, you know, early I get I think I think it was around like 2000 and. and and six, um, I, I went to Chile the first time and I ended up staying with the family, a Chilean family back then uh, for around three weeks. And in my education, I've always been told that Pinochet, the famous dictator is you know, the baddest dictator of them all and everything, which obviously there's some truth to that, right? But I right. actually ended up uh, you know, living in a, you know, in a family's house where the mother and, and, and the father was absolutely adoring Pinochet. In fact, there was pictures wow. of her kissing Pinochet on the cheek. And that for me was a big cultural shock. And right. it almost like created this like, uh, you know, animosity towards the family. But I allowed myself the time to be curious, to learn about the family and ended up really being so close to them that we end up becoming a family. They call me their, you know, their, their foreign, you know, international son or whatever. And, they, and I call them my Chilean family because they're so kind and sweet. So don't judge you know, the book by its cover and don't, you know, really just assume things just because there may not be a, a full alignment in certain things in terms of how you view life as well. So be open and curious. So Haran. Uh, my answer to, to that would be, you don't always have to do things in order. I think a lot of times people will set like, this is a certain path I want to take. And these right. are the steps I need to take. And, uh, you know, there's a number of opportunities that I've had and things that I've done that if I stuck to too rigid of a path, I never would have been open to it. Um, so, so I guess part of that is being open to opportunity, but like, I didn't think that I was going to start teaching at UC Berkeley, the Hospital school of business, when I was like in my mid thirties, right. I thought like, Oh, maybe that's something I could do when I'm 60 years old after I've retired and stopped, but um, you don't have to do things in order, be open to opportunities. What I it's say. also the, the tech world, right? The speed. Uh, I think that's just in the last 10 years with scale up file. If we have been, we've been experienced so much in such a short period of time that it's difficult to, to explain right so every single year it seems kind of five or or ten years uh helping companies to to scale different problems different and also i think that in in this kind of companies growth high growth companies it's also the emotional intensity of of those cultures of those companies the the the, the huge or the high ambition of those companies also allows us to to grow grow very very quickly right and and what I like also to think is 
what we consider a failure uh, in this uh, scene, and this is also a reflection for the ones who are listening, is a huge victory outside of this scene, right? So, right. <laughs> yeah, that's, yeah, yeah, exactly. Isn't that crazy? The, I think I think part of it too is is um, a lot of this path that startups have or these rules that set they they limit you, right? Like a lot of companies will be like, okay, well, we have to get into Y Combinator or some accelerator. Exactly. And then after that, we do this and then we do this and then we raise this round and this round. And that's that's not always the case, you know? And there's goods and bads for following that path. Absolutely. Let me change the word feeling on this podcast a little bit. Just so you know, I want to put that out there because you mentioned that word, but think of it as, you know, the word feel, F-A-I-L. Consider it more as being first attempt in learning. We learned that from Robin Larson from Shopify. I think it's yeah. a great way of thinking about <laughs> it, right? It's a learning opportunity, right? So first attempt in learning when thinking about feeling. Love it. And there is not a, a better way of closing the show. Uh, Aaron, Klaus, uh, thank you so much for making the time, for sharing your insights and congrats for the and, and, and also go to globalclassbook.com. There's tons of resources. We have a we have a podcast too. We have a masterclass of all these experts we've been talking about who share targeted things. There's tons of great resources. Awesome. And Mike, we have to see you in Portugal soon as well. So we want to set up that while we're in town also. Likewise, looking forward to it. And to our community, as you see, we keep bringing you the best of the best to help your life uh, becoming a little bit easier, scaling up your company. See you soon and keep scaling.